Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, this is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac with just a quick note before the show. If you live in San Francisco and have not yet checked out our upcoming live show on October 28th at the Rickshaw Stop with Adam Savage and the Story Collider team, what is wrong with you? I expect to see you there, so go right now to bayareascience.org and search for Inquiring Minds for more info. It's Friday, October 17th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your website. This episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of its courses. It's The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, by former Inquiring Minds guest Neil deGrasse Tyson. To find out more, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And as we search for a permanent co-host, I'm excited to share the podcast with several smart and engaging guest hosts in the next few weeks. So to kick us off, I've invited Cynthia Graber to join me this week. Cynthia filled in for me when I had a baby back in January, and her interview with Michael Pollan is still one of our most popular episodes. And between that time and now, she's actually launched her own podcast called Gastropod, all about the science of food, which you can find on iTunes. She's going to be hosting a couple of full-length interviews for us later this fall that I'm super excited about. But today we're going to talk about some science in the news, starting with a report that she wrote on the disease for Nova. Cynthia Graber, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Great to be here. So before we get to science in the news, I just want to talk a little bit about the main interview for today. And it seems as though since Cosmos, the television show aired, there's been a bit of a renaissance with respect to science content on TV. Um, so in that vein, this month, PBS is airing a series hosted and co-created by author Stephen Johnson, who is known for his writing on the history of innovation and where good ideas come from. It was a book that he wrote a few years ago. His TED Talk on the topic has over 4 million views and his Twitter following is enormous almost 1.4 million followers. So clearly people are hungry for what he has to say. And the airing of the PBS show uh, called How We Got to Now coincides with the release of his book with the same title about six innovations that seem commonplace. So clean water, glass, keeping time, but innovations that changed our society in completely unpredictable and far-reaching ways. And that's what I love about his writing. You never know what you're going to end up with when you start reading one of his stories. So when I asked him about the show, here's what he said. One of the things that we knew very early on in, in, in thinking about the show was that, in a sense, our, our kind of the narrative device that was going to give the audience the most kind of delight and pleasure, um, the way in, say, a thriller, you, you get the pleasure out of like, oh, I thought it was going to be this guy was the murderer, but in fact, it was this guy. In our version of that, the the kind of surprise would come from being taken on these journeys where you start with a simple invention that you think you understand, 
like the invention of the, the, the printing press or the invention of air conditioning. And we kind of walk you through the surprising kind of chain of effects um, of cause and effect that came out of that innovation and how, you know, in the case of air conditioning, how <laughs> the invention of air conditioning helped elect Ronald Reagan <laughs> president in 1980, which is not normally something you would expect to hear. So, Cynthia, what do you think about the show? Well, so I think it sounds fascinating. And I'm really curious now, how in the world did the invention of air conditioning affect the election of Ronald Reagan? I know it's kind of amazing. Um, one of the one of the topics that we talked about in the interview too is this notion that one man poisoned the drinking water in New Jersey and changed women's fashion forever. Yeah, I I thought that was just nuts. I mean, I, it's it, the way that things have repercussions throughout science and history and lead to different innovations or changes that you wouldn't even expect when they start. It, it's just kind of mind blowing. Yeah. And and sometimes I suppose scientists would start to balk at this notion and call it cherry picking. And maybe, you know, there's a confirmation bias. But, you know, that's the beautiful thing about history is that you can find these connections and you can see how one thing leads to another. And even though it's not the whole story, which he fully acknowledges, it's still a really interesting journey. Sure, absolutely. And I think that journey is what makes it such a compelling story. Yeah, absolutely. So that'll be our interview for today. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk to you about a piece that you wrote uh, for Nova. Yep. And I want to start off by asking you, what on earth is the disease-ome? So I know it's kind of, a, there are so many ohms that we have these days. Um, so this is basically the idea that we have to get beyond just genetics to try to understand diseases. And it's referring to the fact that kind of everything works together in a network in our cells and in our bodies. And it's just that network that scientists are trying to explain, so or that scientists are trying to understand better. So uh, let me explain why this is so important. Okay, so when scientists figured out the human genome, they thought this would be the dawn of an entire new era for treating diseases. They'd figure out what the genes or mutations caused which diseases, and they'd treat it. But so this one scientist I spoke to, and I actually used him for the lead, I loved his quote. He said, and I quote, it's been an unmitigated failure. And he did admit probably others wouldn't agree with him. But, you know, there are some really important advances in the study of genetics, incredibly important, but they haven't led to a huge flood of new drugs. Most diseases can't be traced back to one or two genes. And even the ones that can, like sickle cell anemia, they express themselves in very different ways in different people. And it's because our genes are part of a network. There's a whole cascade of interactions, genes to proteins to other proteins to chemicals that turn on other genes and so on. And, and this is what they're calling the disease-ome. So Laszlo Barabasi, he's at Northeastern, he says the genome is like knowing all the parts of a car. And if you look at a parts list, you'll have no idea how a car actually works. And that's what they're trying to tease out. You know, this reminds me so much of also the the revolution that's been happening in neuroscience in the last couple of decades, too, where, you know, first it was really important to figure out what every part of the brain does. And there was this idea that the brain is very modular and each part has its own specific function. And now we know that, of course, that's not true, that one of the most important functions or, or one of the most important ways in which the brain functions is through networks, is through the activity of circuits of brain regions. So on the one hand, we're getting a better idea of, of course, how the brain works. But on the other hand, it's becoming so complicated that you almost feel like you need to throw your arms up in the air and say, you know, are we ever really going to understand this extremely complex system? You know, the more complex we realize that it is, the further away we, f we seem to be from actually solving the problems that matter, like, you know, the diseases that are caused by dysfunctions in the networks. Yeah, you can't see we're not in the same room taping this and you can't see the fact that I'm smiling, not the fact that it's so frustrating, but that I totally agree with you. I think what's so fascinating to me is each time we think we have an answer that's sort of, you know, OK, we figured out how this thing works. And then we just discovered that there's so much complexity to it. And it's these networks that are, are so interesting. And actually, the experts in this field tend to come from network theory, like Laszlo Barabasi. He's an expert in network theory, and he's a physicist. Or they come from computational science, because a lot of this research can't be done without all the really incredible advances in computing power, similar to what you were describing with uh, what we're learning about neuroscience. I think it's, I agree, it's kind of daunting to think that there's still so much we have to understand, but I find that complexity so fascinating. And although at the same time, I should say, writing this article was incredibly challenging because of that. Just the science is really hard. 
Absolutely. And, you know, one thing I liked about in the article was when you talk about uh, a scientist named Mark Vidal, who actually, and I'm quoting your article, hopes to produce a reference map of nearly the entire protein protein network by 2020. So that sounds pretty promising. Yeah, I thought so. I mean, he's he kind of de- he designed the method for understanding for being able to kind of tease out how our proteins interact with each other. And he, he uses yeast to do it. Um, and it is it is promising to me. It's still a few years away, obviously. And what al- what else is promising to me is that there seem to already be some results based on this approach that are already applicable in medicine. So, I, I mean, I think it's really, I think it's turning a corner. I think this approach is offering a new way to look at diseases that could have a real impact on health in the not too distant future. So one other thing that your article brought up for me is this notion that a lot of people have, which is that their DNA is you know, you're born with your your DNA and you die with the same DNA. Um, and now we know that that's simply not true, that your DNA actually changes with age. So I'm talking about epigenetics, or at least the expression of the genes uh, that are coded by your DNA changes over time. So are we going to have to figure out this network for, you know, different age groups or, you know, it seems again, like it, it, it's, 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 you're, you're trying to hurt a bunch of cats, right? Like every time <laughs> we think that we have an understanding of how this works, there's another kind of issue that we need to think about. Well, and I, I have no answer to that, because I have no idea how they're trying to, it, how each question, I mean, I imagine, I feel like I'm stumbling over because I just don't even know the answer to that. Like each each question that the scientists bring up, I think, opens up so many other questions. Um, and so I imagine that that's kind of what they're all trying to figure out. And and they're only able to do, you know, they're, they're taking a look at, well, let's look at just these 300 diseases or, you know, let's try to understand how this one network works or whatever. And there's still so much to learn. Biology is so complicated. So complicated. It's been it's been around for a long time. It's had a long time to get complex. <laughs> oh yeah. It's so let's talk true. about something that's a little bit less complex, and that is whether or not you are smarter than a kindergartner. So of course, there's this um, popular television show, "Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader?" And now there's a study in PLOS One by some psychology researchers from Concordia and the University of British Columbia. I always like to you know give a shout out to my Canadian peeps um, that shows that by the age of Five children are already savvy enough to understand that people who make overly confident claims might just be full of it. So, um, for this study, uh, the the researchers asked a bunch of four and five year olds whether or not they would believe certain statements made by certain speakers. So they actually watched these short videos of two adults talking about animals that the kids were familiar with. So, for example, the speakers would say um, a true statement about an animal in a hesitant voice. So something like, hmm, well, I guess whales live in the water. Um, Or they'd make a false statement about the animal in a confident voice. Oh, I know, whales live in the ground. So the kids were then shown videos of the same two adults speaking about strange animals. And the previously confident speaker then would state the facts with confidence and the hesitant speaker remained hesitant while stating different facts. So um, then the kids were asked, well, who do you believe? Now, of course, remember, these are strange animals, so they don't actually know the truth. Um, and it turns out that if kids are four or younger, it was about 50-50. So they were just as likely to say that the person who was confident uh, was telling the truth as a person who was hesitant. But the closer they got to the age of five, the more skeptical they were of the person who said with utmost confidence some facts about this strange animal. But it's not the fact that they're skeptical about that person's confidence. It's that they're skeptical because they've heard that person say something that was wrong before. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for correcting me. No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah, yeah, but but I mean, I think that's something that really stood out to me even when I read about the study is that it's not that they're it's not that they they're tricked by false confidence. It's that they can tell the difference between somebody who has said something wrong in the past. I mean, maybe maybe the confidence has something to do with it or the maybe that's why the four year olds don't get it as well. But it seems like they can discern, well, that person made a mistake in the past. So even though they sound so confident, I'm not sure I believe that's true. I mean, is that how you what's what's your takeaway from this? Yeah, so so I, I guess I have a 
two questions. One is the extent to which the four-year-olds really have the general knowledge to understand that those statements are false uh, that were told in the confident voice. So do they actually know that whales live in the ocean? (laughs) I'm assuming they do, that they're familiar with that and that that would be weird. And so if somebody said whales live in the ground, you know, I I guess I'm not really sure what's going on in the mind of the four-year-old. The five-year-olds seem a little bit more straightforward in the sense that, okay, so they do realize that the person is telling a lie. And so they take on Uh, this idea that that lying characteristic is something that is a part of the personality of that speaker. And so they bring that skepticism uh, to, you know, the next evaluation of whether or not the person is telling the truth, which I think is really interesting. I mean, that seems to be a pretty higher order, you know, social skill. Um, But I guess one thing that I'm wondering about is, you know, to what extent that uh, memory of of that or, or that, that that personality trait gets ingrained in the child's sort of schema of that person. So if they came back um, a number of weeks later, would the child remember that this is a person that's previously lied? And of course, this is really important for parents. <laughs> well, that's actually uh, what I was it... going to ask you because <laughs> one of the things I was thinking about when I read this was: is this just interesting about neurological development that between four and five, you know, about the time a kid goes into kindergarten, now they can tell a little bit about whether somebody is trustworthy or not? Or, you know, they can start to make judgments about the veracity of what somebody's saying. And but but is that just a oh, that's fascinating cognition or does this have real implications in terms of child care and, and and child development? I think it does, at least in terms of parenting. I think that if you if, if there is a time in which a children all of a sudden realize that, you know, if you tell a lie, they will they will then be skeptical of you no matter what you say in the future. Um, then it's pretty important to know exactly when you should start telling the truth to your children. <laughs> Are you saying that you're going to be lying to your son? <laughs> well, Parents I'm would just never do that. Of course not. <laughs> well, while he's while he's not old enough to understand the reasons behind uh, why we ask him to do certain things like don't touch the stereo. Um, it I might consider saying things that might not be 100% true <laughs> in order to get him to avoid uh, doing things like, you know, damaging the stereo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, for, it's for his own good because, you know, my husband would be really angry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's that I think it's, a, you know, as, as we're trying to figure out how do you, you know, teach a child um, how to navigate the world, uh, you know, to what extent do you make, you know, tell a lie that makes it easy for them to understand why they shouldn't do something um, versus tell the truth, even though it might be more nuanced and complicated, and it might be harder for the for the child to understand. But, you know, mm-hmm. so. Maybe maybe we have until he's four and then we're done. <laughs> maybe. But the other thing is whether or not he knows you're lying. So if it's a lie you can get away with, then it sounds like you're safe. Yeah, that's true. And of course, uh, in, in one of our previous episodes, Chris and I had talked about a study of uh, the fantasy life of, of kids. And, and the interesting sort of take home message there was that kids that were exposed to um, religious education you know, even if it was, even if their parents were secular, but, you know, they sort of went to a, a Catholic school or something like that, um, they tended to have a, a more of a, a challenge uh, telling sort of fantasy from reality later on in life. So it seems like these early experiences really? and, and yeah, it's kind I of that one. kind of a cool study. But anyway, so with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Stephen Johnson. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. So what's so great about Squarespace? It's simple, super easy, but it still has beautiful design options. So if you've ever wanted to make a website but felt overwhelmed with how it all works, Squarespace is the perfect platform for you. You can literally drag and drop content onto your new website. Plus, they have 24-7 chat and email support, and every site comes with an online store absolutely free. So plans start at $8 a month, and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. Show your support for Inquiring Minds and start building your website today. And today's episode is sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, music, and many, many more. And The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. 
But the best part is, is that you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And for a limited time, they're offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of its really, truly great courses. This is The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries by former Inquiring Minds guest Neil deGrasse Tyson. You can kind of think of this particular course as a prequel to his Cosmos series. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Stephen Johnson. Hello. It's an exciting week for you. You have a new show coming out on PBS and a new book out. Uh, so how are things going? Uh, it's been a little hectic. You know, I've, I've done this drill with books uh, many times. This is my ninth book. Uh, and, you know, some of them get more attention than the others. This happens to be one that's getting a lot of attention, which is great. Uh, but I've never <laughs> had a six-part TV series air, you know, in week three of the book tour. Um, so that's uh, that's a whole different uh, ballgame, and I just have no idea what's going to happen. So what made you decide that this would be the book that should have its own series? Well, uh, you know, I'd actually been approached over the years a couple times by folks who were interested in maybe adapting things that I'd done for TV or dreaming up something new. And, you know, the television world is always so crazy. You have like 37 meetings with people and and everyone's all excited, and then suddenly people go away. But um, wait, th- wait, that happens to you too? <laughs> yeah, it's really. I thought it was just me. <laughs> and it, it, you know, I'm used to the book world where I've, I've, you know, uh, wonderfully gotten to the point in my career as an author where I can go in and more or less just persuade my editor that I should write this book, and they say yes, and then I go off and get to write it. You know, there's not, <laughs> there aren't a lot of pitch meetings. You know, uh, and TV is a totally different thing, but. This, this came out of my book, uh, Where Good Ideas Come From, which came out about four years ago and was a, was a, a different kind of history of innovation. It was looking at people and organizations and places that had been unusually innovative and tried to figure out, you know, what lessons we could learn from those experiences. And that book did well and it did well. Um, I did a TED talk that was successful and, and a little animated video that was kind of cute that like four million people watched. And so, it was clear there was something in the storytelling of these this kind of project that was resonating with people, and so this brilliant producer named Jane Root came to me and said, "Let's let's pitch PBS and the BBC on on kind of building a show around the history of innovation." And part of me was like, "I know what this is. I'm going to have 37 meetings and nothing's going to come of it." But I like Jane so much that I kind of trusted her, and we went, uh, and somehow everybody said yes, and suddenly we were making a show. Awesome. And I, you know, I wonder whether the success of Cosmos had anything to do with people being more likely to green light something that had to do with science and technology or, or was this just coincidence? We, we were in the, you know, almost entirely wrapped by the time Cosmos came out. Um, but I think there was something, you know, Jane had been involved in the, at, at the BBC and Discovery a bit with, um, shows like Planet Earth. And she has this great phrase for it, which she's like, she, she says there's a great appetite out there for uh, what she calls clever pleasure. <laughs> you know, that like it's a show that makes you feel smart, but you also really have a fun time watching it. And if you can kind of hit that sweet spot now, um, the you know, and, and, and you can shoot these shows um, in such, you know, beautiful HD um, and everybody's, you know, got these wonderful giant screens. I can watch them on at home now. So she was making the argument that it's a really great time for – a kind of renaissance of this kind of science documentary. And, uh, you know, I think she's, she's probably right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to get back to the storytelling aspect that you mentioned a minute ago, a minute ago, uh, because I think, I think that's exactly right. I think that's one of the most appealing things about your books. Not only do you provide really interesting information, but you provide us with a narrative that links things that, you know, most of us wouldn't have seen the connection. So I wanted you to tell us a little bit about what you call the hummingbird effect. One of the things that we knew very early on in, in, in thinking about the show was that in a sense, our, our kind of the narrative device that was going to give the audience the most kind of delight and pleasure. Um, the way in say a thriller, you, you get the pleasure out of like, Oh, I thought it was going to be this guy was the murderer, but in fact it was this guy in our version of that. The, the kind of surprise would come from being taken on these journeys where you start with a simple invention that you think you understand like the invention, the, the the printing press or the invention of air conditioning. 
and we kind of walk you through the surprising kind of chain of effects um, of cause and effect that came out of that innovation and how, you know, in the case of air conditioning, how <laughs> the invention of air conditioning helped elect Ronald Reagan <laughs> president in 1980, which is not normally something you would expect to hear. And in, in the book, I, I wanted a name for these, you know, kind of surprising, unanticipated consequences. And I was writing the book in, in California and we have these beautiful little hummingbirds in our garden. And so I was kind of obsessed with hummingbirds and had started kind of researching. This is, this is the way I am. Uh, I was like, look at that beautiful bird. I need to find out more about those birds. And so I would, as, as totally just as a hobby, I was researching like the kind of evolution of hummingbirds. And it turns out that it's an interesting metaphor for what happens with technology where the flowering plants and the insects develop this, you know, elaborate symbiotic relationship over the, you know, over millions of years. And it would seem for a long time that this was just a relationship between plants and insects. But then somewhere along the way, this bird figured out that there was a way to kind of extract the energy from and then the nectar from these from these flowers. And to do that, they had to evolve a completely different wing design from normal birds. And that was kind of the metaphor I had. You think you're inventing something that just involves, you know, flowers and insects, but it ends up changing the anatomy of birds. And that we see that again and again and again in the history of technology. So I, I called it the hummingbird effect. So you've also just described some another major theme of your book, which is that often the most innovative leaps come from people who work at the intersection of two fields or who adapt their own expertise into a field in which they are not experts. Um, and unlike the fact that most of us are told, look, you need to specialize, 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 you need to become an expert in one thing, you need to do that when you know, before your age five, pick what it is you're going to do with your life and then, you know, pursue that as hard as possible. You're suggesting that actually some of the biggest leaps happen when people change fields or at least start working uh, in fields that are not their expertise. Yeah, this has become a big theme of mine. It's, it shows up in a bunch of the books. Um, and in fact, you know, the first place where I really wrote about this at length um, was in the book I wrote called The Ghost Map about the cholera epidemic in London, which... Uh, is a story we actually tell in the show, in the clean episode. I didn't tell it really in in any detail in the book because I'd already written a book on the, the, that whole topic, so I didn't want to bore people who had already read the, the ghost map. But that's a story about how we came to understand that cholera and, and a lot of other diseases were actually in the water supply of our cities, and people were dying because they were drinking this water that had been contaminated with bacteria. And the guy who comes up with this is this brilliant 19th century figure, John Snow, and one of the things that made him such, you know, an interesting figure, first off, cholera itself was kind of a hobby for Snow. He was just a doctor, but he got interested in the epidemiology of cholera as a, as a side project. And he got interested in map making as a side project. And he was able to see, without the aid of microscopes, he actually couldn't physically see the, um, the bacteria in the water itself. But he was able to come to this understanding that the water supply was the, was the, basically the contaminant uh, in a way that no one else could at that at that moment in time, precisely because he had a bunch of different fields of expertise. So he was trained as a doctor, so he could look at the actual physical symptoms of cholera, and that helped him, gave him some clues. But he also was a map maker, and he ended up making these maps of an outbreak in Soho that pointed to this contaminated well, um, which was crucial to the story. But he also was almost also as an amateur, he, he was an anesthesiologist, um, helped invent the practice of anesthesiology, actually. And his understanding of gases and the dispersal of gases helped him debunk basically the, the what was called the miasma theory at the time and, and a couple of other things. So he, he was this kind of intersection point between all these different fields. And that was what it wasn't his just his kind of raw genius or his or his one single field of expertise, but it was the fact that he was at that intersection between all these different interests that gave him the, the insight that truly changed the world. So I want to delve a little bit more deeply into the episode that you're just describing called Clean. It's it's the very first episode of the PBS or BBC series. Um, and it also has uh, it, what I found to be really amazing visualizations of these massive changes that, you know, having clean water, essentially access to clean water have have made in terms of our ability to live in larger and larger cities. So I, I wanted to first um, talk to you about the, the the image that has stuck with me the most, which is that massive 
reservoir of stormwater. Um, oh, I think yeah. it's outside of Chicago, yeah. um, which you call the world's biggest bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chicago has this issue where Chicago has had historically, and we talk about this in some detail, um, basically like drainage problems because it's so flat. Uh, and a lot of the engineering that's gone on in Chicago over the, over the last 150 years has, has been trying to deal with this issue. And they've created this, you know, they've got the system working pretty well, except they get these huge, largely summer storms that come in and just kind of flood the system. And at that point, you can have, uh, the kind of waste backing up into the, into the lake or the river. And, and so they need a place to kind of put this stuff temporarily. They need to, need a place to put all the kind of storm water temporarily and then they can slowly let it out over time and so they took an old quarry uh which is this immense structure uh, in, in part created to build the skyscrapers of chicago so it's all kind of comes full circle and then they built this massive um you know underground tunnel there and what we did is we descended down i think the equivalent i'm not sure exactly how deep it is it was something like 300 or 400 feet um down, we were lowered down in this little cage down to the bottom of this. And we, the footage I think you're thinking of is we took this, we, we attached a GoPro to the bottom of the cage as it was going down. And it's such a huge tunnel that when you start, you can't even see what's happening. If you watch all six, it takes about six minutes to go all the way down. And I've watched this footage, you know, we show about 20 seconds of it in the show, but I've watched it all six minutes of it. And in the beginning, you can't even tell what's beneath you. It's so far away. And then you start to see these little things moving around and you realize that they're people. And then you can see that they're building this whole structure and it's a construction site down at the bottom of this tunnel. But the thing I wanted to do was actually, I may do this someday, uh, is take that six minute clip and compose some like weird ambient kind of Brian Eno style music for it. And then just release that <laughs> as like, <laughs> as a kind of art house version of our show. Cause it, it is really surreal. Um, it's great. It's great. We use GoPros a lot. Actually, they really are amazing and, uh, what you can do with them. Yeah, and that was what uh, that that was a moment when I thought, "Wow, this is this is what makes this a, a, a topic that is great for a television show." Because when I was you know reading the book, I could not I, just the scale of what you're talking about. I think that's also what made Cosmos great is that all of a sudden you get a sense of the scale when you have this visualization of it. Um, whereas when you're reading, it's hard to do. And, and in fact, you've even talked about your difficulty in terms of visualizing some of this stuff. Well, the biggest problem I have is that I'm just, I, I realized actually doing the series where I'm just not as, um, my books have tended to put the ideas and the kind of the science and the technology in the foreground and put the, the people and the characters in, in the background um, for the most part. Uh, and I, when we were making the show, there was a constant kind of reminder of like, well, we have to tell stories about people. People like to hear about other human beings. It's in our you know, DNA. We're social animals. We want to hear about other people. And so it's a kind of tension. And I personally, you know, it's, I was joking that this is why I'm not a novelist, because, uh, you know, if I wrote novels, it would be like the main character walked into the room. He had a nose and two eyes. <laughs> like, you know, I just don't really remember <laughs> details about people's faces and stuff like that. So, um, uh, so there are all these weird things you find that, you know, you're kind of better at as a writer or as just a kind of observer at the world of the world. So you also talk about, um, in, in that episode and in the book about Dr. John Neal and how he was thought to have poisoned an entire city. So tell us his story. Yeah, he's this really interesting guy, kind of turn of the century guy, about 110 years ago, uh, who was one of the first people who began convinced that it, by chlorinating the drinking water, by adding small doses of chlorine to the water, um, we could eliminate whatever remaining um, bacteria was in the water that was still causing people to get sick. We'd built some public infrastructure, um, sewer systems and things like that that improved the water supply, but it still wasn't perfect. And the problem is that you know, chlorine is a poison. If you drink, you know, a couple of glasses of it, you're not going to have a good day. Um, but Leal understood in part because he had access to very good microscopes. So an advancement in our ability to see and to measure the content of bacteria in a water. This is really crucial. I talk about this in the book more than in the show. Um, he had a tool to kind of measure what happened to the amount of bacteria in a water so he could test his, his hypotheses out. In the old days, if you had an hypothesis about how to clear, clean the water, you would kind of do it and then you'd wait for a month and see if anybody died. <laughs> and that was the way you could test it. But he could actually observe 
the microorganisms and see if he was killing them off or not. So that made a huge difference. And he became convinced that chlorine would be the, the way to, to make the water safer. But he couldn't get, you know, the popular, you know, the general public to agree to this idea that we should put poison in our drinking water. It just doesn't sound, you know, it sounds counterintuitive. Uh, and so he kind of just went out and did it without really getting permission. And then there was a huge court case, actually, where he almost got into serious trouble for doing this. But it turned out that, in fact, it was a huge breakthrough. And as chlorination then spread across the country, um, it ended up reducing child and infant mortality single-handedly by more than 50 percent. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that, the, that we really try and spend a lot of time with in the show and the book, which is to say, you know, we talk about innovation all the time in our society, you know, and we're always talking about the next Apple gadget and the next startup with the 25-year-old billionaire. But the, the innovation that gives us clean drinking water and the set of innovations that enabled us to kind of reliably get water from a tap and not worry about dying of cholera, um, those are, I would argue, even more important innovations than what's coming out of Silicon Valley. And yet we don't celebrate that nearly as much. And, and people like John Leal, who never became famous, never became rich. Um, but, you know, we owe a huge amount of kind of a, a huge debt of gratitude to them. So hopefully we can kind of shine some light on these people. Yeah. And, and hopefully for every, you know, John Neal who has a good um, intention, there aren't three with nefarious intentions at, you know, secretly adding things to our water that yeah. would make it pretty really bad. <laughs> exactly. So, well, we're trying to, you know, make more of the good guys. <laughs> but um, that also get, brings me to another point that you seem to make, which is this idea that um, big changes in our the way we, that we live, um, things that make our cities function, really require big infrastructure. And kind of the underlying idea here is that government must be involved. So if we want to have cities that function, somebody needs to foot the bill. And so I wonder to what extent your, um, dis your sort of understanding of these technological innovations and where they came from, does that make you feel that government should have a bigger role in, in enhancing innovation and, and driving this kind of infrastructure? I think that what, what I've tried to argue less in this book, but uh, quite a bit in, in actually the last book I wrote, Future Perfect, um, is that, and also in Where Good Ideas Come From, is that the assumption we have in the society, particularly in the United States, that all of innovation comes from the private sector. And it all comes from, you know, kind of startups and big companies competing with each other from people incentivized by the idea that they're going to make a vast fortune from their invention. Uh, but that's just wrong. That's that's only part of the story. It's a big part of the story. Um, but you know, just, just simply look at at, at the high tech sector today. Um, if you take out things that were either directly funded by the government or that came out of open source collaborations, where there actually isn't a profit motive, where people actually don't have ownership of what they're creating. If you took those two things out of the modern tech sector, it would disappear. I mean, it would literally stop working. We would lose the internet. We would lose the web. We would lose Wikipedia. We would lose every bit of open source software, which would cause all of our Android and iOS phones to go dark. I mean, we would have nothing to build on. Now, the beautiful thing about those platforms, some of them supported by the government, some of them supported by these open source efforts, is that they often create the kind of groundwork um, the infrastructure for lots of private sector innovation and lots of, you know, kind of commercial projects. But the idea that, you know, that the, the, the private sector is single handedly making all of these new ideas possible is just historically inaccurate and, and I think will be increasingly inaccurate in the future. So getting back to the clean water story, I want to kind of wrap it up a little bit for our listeners and to kind of give them what is kind of like a punchline, which is that this, this notion that chlorinating our water actually changed women's fashion forever. <laughs> so walk us through that. There's a, there's a really interesting book called Contested Waters about, about this, about the history of kind of swimming. Well, one of the things that happens is, um, People just weren't likely to swim, to know how to swim until really around the 20s. And what changed it is once we started chlorinating uh, water in swimming pools, it was, you know, suddenly kind of safe to swim in a swimming pool. And there was this explosion of swimming pool building, uh, you know, public swimming pools uh, all across the country in the 20s and 30s. And all these people learned how to swim in the, those kind of 
that period between the war. And the idea of kind of hanging out at a pool and seeing people in swimsuits, um, that became a, a big kind of driver of was kind of fashion was transmitted through that route before, you know, you really just didn't see people in swimwear. And during that period, there is an incredible, basically, compression of the size of women's <laughs> swimsuits. Uh, in about 20 years, it, it goes to, I don't know, there's some statistic about it. It's like they were like average of 10 yards of fabric to like two yards of fabric or something extreme like that. And without the venue of the swimming pool, the public swimming pool, that those trends in fashion would, wouldn't have spread nearly as quickly. Now, they were influenced by Hollywood and by other things as well. But we always hear about Hollywood and women's fashion magazines as spreading fashion. We don't normally think about like chlorinated drinking water having an influence on fashion as well. But it's, it's part of the story. Yeah, maybe not the sexiest part of the story, but it sounds like... <laughs> yeah. uh, That's why my job is to tell the least sexy part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about the something that's been, you know, in the news in the last few years is this notion that um, of sort of sex differences or gender differences in innovation. So of course, there's, um, you know, a group of people out there that suggests that women just aren't as creative, they're not as innovative, they're not responsible for most of the technological advances, um, just because their brains work differently. And um, I both as a neuroscientist and as a woman don't adhere to that particular point of view. But I wondered if you had any insights uh, going through your history of innovation, which is quite different from what we read in other history books, about the role of women in some of these innovations? Well, you know, we actually spent quite a bit of time making sure that we had, you know, as, as sub substantial a representation of women in the show and in the book as possible. It's, it's, it's difficult because a lot of the um, material we're, we're dealing with is, you know, 17... 18th, 19th century, where just society was just engineered in such a way. So it was hard for women to be innovative, um, just because of the, you know, kind of sexism of the time. Um, but we, we have a number of women that we profile on the show because they are an important part of the story. And, and of course, increasingly important part of the story. And I mean, the idea that, I mean, if anything, <laughs> if anything, I, I think in the long run, uh, we will see the reverse being the case that probably the, the, the women who tend to be on average for whatever reason, whether it's neurological or whether it's cultural, tend to be better at collaboration, tend to be better at kind of speaking across disciplinary lines, um, both of which are key to innovation. Uh, I, I would suspect that we would find, if anything, that like women are kind of more naturally suited to it um, than men, but certainly they, you know, they should be equal. We just have a long history that we're trying to kind of get out of, uh, uh, of men having the only opportunity to do this. So there's another kind of feature of innovation that you talk about that is counterintuitive, or uh, at least it, it goes against what we normally think of as the stroke of insight that happens in one second that solves your problem. That's what creativity is, et cetera. But instead, you talk about the slow hunch. So t tell us a little bit about what is the slow hunch? Yeah, it's a phrase I first started using I think actually in, in a book I wrote called The Invention of Air about Joseph Priestley and the Founding Fathers, but I had a whole chapter on it in um, Where Good Ideas Come From. And uh, uh, it's basically, as you said, it's this kind of anti-light bulb moment that in fact, the, the biggest ideas almost always have this kind of slow evolutionary process um, to them. And they sometimes take 10 years to turn into something really transformative. And you know, we talk about um, flash freezing in the episode on cold and um, Clarence Birdseye who invents frozen food, but also a flash freezing technology that becomes central to freezing human embryos and IVF and all this amazing stuff. So he that was an idea that developed in his head over 10 years. And it was just little bits and pieces like he went ice fishing and uh, he was living in Labrador and he it was the winter and he had a little kid and he was trying to just get some good food and he went ice fishing and he pulls the fish out of the water and it's so cold that it freezes instantly in the air. And when he goes back to thaw it out and, and eat it a couple of days later, he's like, this is the tastiest fish I've ever had. Like, I can't believe it tastes so good. Normally frozen food tastes terrible. And <laughs> normally the rest of us in that kind of situation, we'd be like, okay, well, it was a good fish. Now I'm going to go read or do something. But he was like, I need to find out why that fish was so tasty. And so he started to investigate it and did all these experiments with freezing food at different temperatures. 
But it still took him another like six years after that before the idea fully came around and he developed this kind of industrial process for flash freezing and, and then ultimately became, you know, a multimillionaire and sold his company to General Foods and and now he's on packets of frozen peas to this day. Uh, but it's that ability to kind of keep kind of half of an idea, a, a little bit of an idea, a hint of an idea alive in your mind for for a long period of time as it evolves or as the world evolves around you to kind of catch up with that idea. That's that's often the mark of the, tr the true innovators as opposed to the ones who, you know, we hear about that just have these moments of insight. So you also talk about the fact that as our technology advances, it becomes more and more difficult for us to really understand it if we're not immersed in it. So this this notion that um, the more advances we make, the more they sort of become hidden from the average person. And so that led me to wonder whether we're going to enter an era where it's going to be more difficult for people to work at this sweet spot, the intersection of two different fields, um, because there will be such a, a massive technological difference between fields. Yeah, it's true. That's a really good point. I mean, one of the, it's a lot easier to celebrate these amateurs from the 18th century and 19th century, like Snow or Joseph Priestley that I, you know, love to write about because they were working at a time where the, you know, the scientific method just hadn't been applied to a lot of, you know, kind of immediate reality. And so you could, as Priestley did, you could isolate new gases in your kitchen. Like you could discover like whole new, you know, kind of components of the natural world, like while you were doing the dishes, um, if you had the right tools and the right method and the right mind. Uh, and you can't do that anymore, right? There, there's, you know, we, we've stacked up all that stuff. So we do need to specialize. We do need focus. You do need to go to grad school if you're going to do important work. It's just that you also need to have those those kind of lateral interests and those hobbies. Um, if you're going to do groundbreaking physics work, you can't just, you know, do that at home with a telescope. You have to, you know, actually do the 10,000 hours, um, as Malcolm Gladwell would say. But if you really want to be creative and come up with new insights um, and not just kind of incrementally improve your field, you, you most likely have to have a, a wide range of interests because that's where the, the inspiration is going to come from. So when you're writing about technological innovations, make sure you observe the hummingbirds in your garden. Exactly. It works for me. I don't know. It'll work for other people. <laughs> so I wanted to end with one last question, which is you wrote about um, glass, about cold, about sound, about clean time and light. What was the one topic that you feel you should have you want you or that you wanted to cover that you didn't get a chance to cover? Or what are the innovations today that you see to ha that will be having the biggest impact on us 50 years from now? Oh, there's so many. And we, we walked through a bunch of different other options, too. And, and we hopefully we, there may be more seasons of the show so we can get to them. Um, you know, there are various different forms of energy uh, are obviously key on that list. You could tell really interesting stories about that. And uh, and food, there's a whole history of kind of innovation in, in food, uh, which is tied into innovations in energy is kind of an innovation in energy. Um, but even in the pleasure of food, uh that's really great. And then I, I was just researching um, some really interesting stuff. This sounds crazy, but about the history of shopping, about the history of stores and kind of shopping as a recreational activity. Um, it, it turns out to be completely transformative in all these ways, but I can't tell you that much about it because I have a feeling that's going to be in a future project. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, in even in the last 10 years, the way that we shop has changed completely. I mean, yeah. I remember when, when first people were like, oh, don't give your credit card to some online company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like, yeah. I do that exclusively now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I go to the store and I take a picture of the item <laughs> and buy it on Amazon. It's terrible. <laughs> I know I yeah, shouldn't do yeah, that. Yeah, really. Don't admit that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Stephen Johnson. My pleasure. So... <laughs> He just mentioned innovations in food. Maybe I should talk to him for Gastropod, which is my new history and science of food podcast. Yeah, <laughs> not to get a little like self-promotion his... in there. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds like he's he, that's sort of another topic that he wants to hit up. And so he might be a perfect guest uh, for your show or, you know, be able to, you know, point you in some interesting directions. Um, but I think that's also a really interesting topic. I mean, I think, you know, of course, all of us eat every day, most of us anyway. Um, and it's something that we don't necessarily think about as being particularly reliant on innovation. And, and in one uh, whole 
part of his book, he actually talks about refrigeration and how that has made it possible for us to live in parts of the world that are, you know, essentially uninhabitable, like Arizona. Yeah, actually, refrigeration is kind of the obsession of my co-host, Nicola Twilley. She wrote an article for The New York Times Magazine on on China's cold chain. And, and this is this is something she's been spending a lot of time researching. And and I also I think just what you were saying, these these changes in our society that have made such a difference, like the way he was talking about the water systems, clean water. I mean, we turn on a tap and most people don't think about the science behind it, the history behind it, how it all works. And I just thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it wasn't until uh, my husband and I bought our house and we had a bit of a problem with our sewer that I started to realize like what a major issue the sewer system is, because if it doesn't work, it's terrible. <laughs> um, and, what happened and, to you? Is, was oh, everything well, okay? we don't need to go into the details. It was years ago. <laughs> <Okay>. but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's still a part of me that is slightly worried every time I flush the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, the whole these whole stories about these incredibly important innovations. And they're not the innovations people think about. You know, we think about these flashy startups and those types of changes. And and I loved how he said those aren't those aren't the ones that are necessarily the ones that change society the most, not the ones that are motivated by pr- profit coming from the private sector. You know, I thought those were really interesting points. Yeah. And the other thing I like about his writing is that he does kind of lay out the importance of what he calls the slow hunch. You know, most of us think about creativity or innovation as a kind of light bulb eureka moment. And yet, time and time again, that's just not how it happens. In fact, those eureka moments are probably the exceptions and that most of these innovations come from a very long kind of incubation period in which someone, you know, is working on a problem for a long time. And I'm not even sure I believe in that idea of a eureka moment, because I think that even those people who have them or who, you know, there are stories that we that are told about a particular eureka moment, they come about because somebody's been noodling on something for a while already or, or has worked on different aspects of that problem or has thought about other things behind that problem. So, I, I mean, I think it's very rare, I think, that, that there's just sort of a light bulb that goes off and a big idea happens. Yeah, absolutely. And and apparently we don't need it. <laughs> we can make <laughs> we can be innovative without those light bulb moments. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank our listeners for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and I want to thank Cynthia Graber for being our guest host. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiring minds, and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash inquiring minds podcast, and you can send us comments, cookie recipes, feedback, future guest ideas, future host ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiring minds at climatedesk.org. Once again, today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your website. This episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. For a limited time only, they are offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries by former Inquiring Minds guest Neil deGrasse Tyson. To find out more, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that partners The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Cynthia Graber. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.